Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Focus on Albany. My guest today is Zach Williams, and here he's here to spotlight state government. So you came back from a week's recess, Zach, and um, you texted me this morning. There's a lot going on. So Phyllis and um, I think bail reform was the overall um, overriding issue of the week. What do you think? Well, things have certainly been building on bail reform, especially since two weeks ago when the Senate released those uh, proposals that would allow judges to get some uh, discretion again when determining whether people should be jailed pre-trial. And that momentum's only grown in the last uh, week. Just this morning, on Friday, the governor, I believe, for the first time said explicitly, no nonsense, he wants to get changes in the upcoming budget and would not sign the state budget unless they are. So I think that's about the as clear as you can get it from the governor. And while Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins in the Senate has not said something quite that definitive, you know, in the last couple of days, she certainly has said more or less that she feels the same as the governor. Why do you think this year this is such an important issue? Well, I think the biggest reason why why it's become such a high-profile issue is because the Republicans have just been um, hammering it, as Senate Minority Leader John Flanagan said they would at the beginning of the session, day in, day out, sometimes with the facts behind them, and other times uh, stretching the truth a little bit. I think the most... um, the clearest example of that was that recent um, killing on Long Island where of a witness in a, <clears throat> in a case involving an MS-13 gang member. The Nassau County District Attorney and some other local officials said, you know, oh, this is because of the new discovery reforms. But as the facts, uh, you know, came, came out in the rest of the day, it turned out that it wasn't. And, you know, the Republicans nonetheless have been hitting that message that what the Democrats did by limiting cash bail and, and implementing some other criminal justice reforms has endangered public safety. And I think Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty is on to something when he complains that a lot of misinformation is out there. You know, a lot of the cases that have been cited are not as clear cut as the Republicans and other critics of, of the new reforms um, say they are. That said, there are some legitimate um, concerns about these new um, criminal justice reforms, which after all are dramatic changes from what was um, in the past. You know, most nonviolent felonies and misdemeanors uh, are not eligible for cash bail anymore, but at the same time, you know, local officials across the state, whether they're sheriffs, district attorneys, or um, other, other elected officials have complained that um, not only are these big changes, but the state legislature didn't give them the money they needed to implement it. I think what's going on with discovery reform uh, is a good example. You know, in the past, um, prosecutors could wait until the day of trial to let the defense attorneys know what evidence they actually had. Now, prosecutors have to turn that evidence over in 15 days. And they say that they're really scrambling, that it takes a lot of resources to speed things up that much, you know, whereas in the past they could, you know, they could have months, sometimes years um, to prepare turning over evidence, which was, you know, gave them a huge advantage over criminal defendants. Now the scales have tipped in the other direction, but I think there are some good faith criticisms of the reforms. 
and it looks like the governor and the majority leader are listening to them. Assembly Speaker Carl Hasty, though, has said, you know, look, these have only been in effect for about nine weeks now. Whether it's criminal justice reforms or any other law, it takes time to collect good data and see what the effect really is, especially when you have, you know, the Republicans and other critics highlighting a few anecdotal examples of, of bad things that have come out of these reforms when there are thousands of other people who might be benefiting from them. So uh, on the subject of, like, bail reform, uh, what comes to my mind is Sheldon Silver. Has he, is he still out on bail? Well, the former assembly, he's, uh, he's out on bail and he's awaiting um, sentencing, actually. Uh, I guess you wouldn't really call it bail when, when he's, uh, you know, he's already been tried and convicted. He's on appeal right now. And he's now going all the way to the Supreme Court of the United States in the last desperate bid to avoid jail time five years after he was uh, corrupt, uh, convicted of various <clears throat> corruption-related offenses. Um, so, you know, we'll see. We'll see if the Supreme Court actually takes his case. But I think you, mm-hmm. you raise a valid point when, you know, whether it's Harvey Weinstein or Shelly Silver, or any other privileged client, uh, privileged defendant who has access to money and influence, you know, they can avoid jail pre-trial or pre-conviction. Whereas under the old criminal justice laws, you know, even if you're just arrested for a minor offense like marijuana possession, or in the case of Khalif Browder, that 16-year-old who spent three years on Rikers, allegedly stealing right. a backpack, there's just no way out. Um, you know, when when um, the criminal justice system is just so is is so much stacked against low income people. So the, there's two names that have popped up, uh, up in the last few weeks, and that's uh, Montserrat and then Jesse Hamilton. Montserrat was uh, both of them were uh, a. a tossed out of office, but Montserrat was, uh, you know, he he did a criminal thing, but uh, Jesse was involved with the IBC. So all of these names from the past keep on popping up. What do you think? Well, Hiram Montserrat's um, uh, history with the Democratic Party in the last uh, 10, 15 years has uh, has been, shall we say, controversial. You might recall he was one of a few Democratic senators who went over to the GOP 10 years ago in the Senate coup right. and through support, um, you know, to give them the majority after the Democrats won, won a majority in the, 20, the 2008 elections. After that, um, and after things settled, settled back down a little bit, he, a video emerged of him slashing his girlfriend, his then-girlfriend, in an apartment building um, in Queens. And while the charges um, were eventually dropped, you know, he did plead guilty to a, to a, a misdemeanor charge, I believe. Um, and actually, and, and actually got expelled from the Senate because of that incident, you know, the legislative equivalent of being impeached and removed from office. Later on, he got entangled in a federal uh, corruption suit and actually spent a little bit of time in prison now he's out. He says he's a changed man, but his, um, you know, the, the incumbent that he's challenging for a seat in the assembly, Jeffrey and Aubrey of Queens, 
you know, kind of uh, said if Hiram Montserrat wants to, you know, win back the public trust, maybe you should find something else besides running for st- for the assembly. And by the way, he still owes thousands of dollars in restitution for the money that he was convicted of embezzling in a mail fraud suit. As for Jesse Hamilton, you know, I think he his he hasn't been entangled in criminal charges, but he was among the um, six members of the former independent Democratic conference that were voted out of office in the 2018 elections. He was defeated by now state Senator Zellner Myrie. Now um, Hamilton is getting ready for a political comeback, not by trying, not by challenging for his old seat, but actually by challenging incumbent assemblywoman, Diane Richardson, who represents a part of central Brooklyn. So we'll see. You know, there's a law that's before the legislature that would effectively ban Montserrat from running because it would say that if you're con- if you're a public official convicted of a crime, you cannot serve again for another 10 years. That time limit has not expired yet for Montserrat, but it remains to be seen whether the legislature will actually pass that bill. Hamilton, meanwhile, you know, he he um, played, uh, you know, he's a member of the IDC, sided with the Republicans for years. But, you know, he's uh, free to run for whatever office he wants in New York State. Hmm. Education was a hot topic this week, right? Well, the governor has been beating the drum again about changing the way that state funding makes its way to local school districts. You know, a, a big part of what the governor says he wants to do is, is ending an informal agreement among lawmakers called SHARES. Basically, that says that approximately, I think it's 13% of state funding goes to schools on Long Island. Another, I believe it's 38, 39%, something about that, goes to New York City, and the rest goes to upstate. If you kind of look at the math from all the various state budgets over the years, you see it always breaks down by those percentages. The governor says, well, let's end that. Um, And by the way, he also wants to um, do a couple other things that are very opposed by the lawmakers. One of them, to put it simply, is to take a bunch of different funds that are used to help school districts um, pay for things like school buses and and, um, textbooks, combine them into one thing and roll it over into what's called foundation aid, the main source of funding for public schools. The governor says it makes it more simple, makes it more fair, makes it easier to direct funding to the poorest schools within districts. His critics, though, see this as a bunch of smoke and mirrors that basically will allow him to say he's raising um, education funding when, in fact, he's merely shifting money from one place and putting it in the other. Mm. So, um, you know, I read read today – that um, there's a shouting match between Bloomberg and Cuomo on uh, gay marriage, where uh, Cuomo uh, had a pass in in the state Senate, but uh, Bloomberg wants to take credit for it. So do you think this can amount to anything? Well, you know, Cuomo has um, unofficially endorsed Joe Biden for the Democratic nomination for president. Um, So he was already, you know, kind of holding his cards close to his chest and and helping Biden. But I and I think a lot of people had wondered whether or not he might throw his support to Bloomberg once, um, you know, voting after Super Tuesday when presumably Bloomberg might do better than Joe Biden. 
I think now the governor's, you know, got a reason to hesitate on doing that because if there's one thing that you can do to anger Andrew Cuomo, it's it's uh, undermine his claim that the passage of gay marriage in New York State in, in 2011 was in large part due to his work. And I think, you know, the historic record backs it up really well. My colleague, Rebecca Lewis at City and State wrote a very extensive oral history where person after person, you know, showed how behind the scenes Cuomo really wrangled votes, strong-armed people, did what he had to do to get to get New York to become the first large state to approve gay marriage through the legislative process. And that involved even getting some Republicans on board. And what Bloomberg said in the debate was because was that he actually had used his influence over Senate Republicans at that time to get gay marriage passed when he was the mayor of New York City. And there just aren't a lot of facts to back that up. Was he a big donor to Senate Republicans? Absolutely. But was he a key figure in passing gay marriage in New York State? Well, you show me anybody that that was actually there at the time that um, attests to that because we haven't heard anybody yet including the three senators that proved to be the key votes on that legislation. And it, you know, that claim at the debate really t- touched a nerve with the Cuomo people. They've been sending all sorts of stuff to, you know, reporters in the Capitol press corps to just say, look, this person just has no idea what Bloomberg is talking about. And, you know, I think that means that if the time were to ever come when the governor would endorse Michael Bloomberg, it would now be done pretty um, grudgingly unless Bloomberg quickly reverses course and just says, you know, look, I exaggerate a little bit. It really was the governor that got that done. Um, which I think will be interesting to see if that, that if he would say that. And also this week, another important issue was uh, sur- surrogacy for, for pregnancy. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Well, surrogacy is when you basically take someone else's egg and you implant it in a different woman who then bears the child. Now, in New York, New York is one of just three states where that is illegal to pay someone to be a just what's called a gestational surrogate. Um, Some lawmakers, notably State Senator Brad Hoyleman and the governor, both want to legalize paid gestational surrogacy, but there's, you know, it's a, it's an issue that really cuts um, across some interesting political lines. You know, it's not a Republican versus Democrat issue so much as it, you know, a group of, dare I say, older feminists who were, you know, from that second wave of feminism that really focused on, you know, ending the exploitation of women. These lawmakers, like State Senator Liz Kruger, Assemblywoman um, Deborah Glick, and Dee Barrett, and a few others, have really played a key role in holding up this legislation um, this year, as well as last year when the governor and Hoyleman made a big push um, towards the end of session to get this done. This time around, Kruger says that she, you know, she wants to legalize gestational surrogacy by including... Um, several provisions that other proponents have called non surrogates I think the, the easiest one for your listeners to grasp is this idea that a surrogate should have at least eight days where they could contest um, the custody of the child that they bore, a child that's actually not genetically related to them. For, you know, Hoyleman told me earlier in the week that, you know, if, 
if he had a surrogate and he's had two children through surrogates with his husband, if his surrogate had, you know, the right to contest the custody of a child, uh, you know, after it was born, well, then, you know, he would have never gone through the surrogacy process to begin with. So, you know, some might say that what State Senator Kruger is really doing is just raising the bar so high with legislation she's backing that it will just be impossible to overcome, you know, her and in the opposition in the assembly where, you know, there really are votes to hold up this bill. But Cuomo wants to get it done. He's got a lot of leverage in the budget process. They started a lot earlier this year. And during my conversation with Secretary to the Governor, Melissa DeRosa, last week, she really seemed to show that the, that the administration is determined to get this done. And when the Cuomo administration wants to get things done, chances are that they're going to be able to overcome the opposition of a few lawmakers who are influential, yet hardly determinative in whether a majority in both houses supports this idea, especially if it's linked with the whole state spending plan. What's going on with Jacob? Well, Jacob's another interesting one too. You know, Jacob was started in, in um, I believe, 2011 through a deal with uh, the Senate Republicans, the Assembly Democrats, and Governor Cuomo. And the idea was to have an independent body that would oversee ethics enforcement of uh, state government. And recent cases have just shown that Jacob is not up to the task. One of the the commissioners this week said as much, and uh, State Senate Majority Leader Andrea Stewart-Cousins has not even made one of the appointments she could make to, to um, Jay Cope, the Joint Commission on Public Ethics, um, because she just doesn't have any confidence that make a difference. So a group of lawmakers are picking up where they left off last year with the idea of passing a constitutional amendment that would set up a new Government Integrity Commission. Now, the benefit of passing a constitutional amendment is that you don't need to go through the governor. What you got to do is pass it once with one legislature, and then after the next um, election, you pass it one more time, and then it goes to the voters of the state as a ballot uh, initiative. A pretty high bar to meet, but you can keep the governor out, and there's a key reason why that could be helpful here, because the proposed amendment they have would actually give judges seven out of the 13 seats on this new government integrity commission with legislative leaders of, um, you know, getting one apiece. That's the Republican and democratic leaders in the Senate and assembly. They each get one vote and then the governor gets two. So it really would mark a huge swing in power to the judiciary at the cost of lawmakers and the governor. A, A lot, a lot of people besides the governor don't like that idea. It remains to be seen whether this amendment will actually move. Um, If it doesn't, that means the whole effort is put off by two years because of what I just mentioned about how you need two successive legislatures to pass an amendment before it can go to voters. If all goes well, voters will get a chance to chime in in uh, fall 2021, but they're going to need a few dozen more lawmakers to get on board with this proposal before it looks like it's going to be able to move forward. As of as of Sunday, plastic bags are going to be outlawed in grocery stores and in New York State, and people will either use plas- uh, paper bags 
to the tune of $5 a bag or bring their own. Um, do you see this as uh, a winning situation? Uh, how, how good will this be for the environment? Because when you go into a store, you know, you might use a paper bag or you might bring a bag from home, but everything seems to be wrapped in plastic. So what's the difference if there's one more thing, which is the plastic bag? What's your feeling? Well, I think the the environmental benefits of keeping a few billion um, plastic bags out of the environment is pretty self-evident. You know, you, I think there is an argument to be said that it's not going to make the biggest difference in the grand scheme of things, especially in combating climate change. But there certainly is reason to believe that um, that a lot of good could come out of keeping plastic out of waterways, out of landfills and the like. But I think what's really more interesting with the plastic bag ban is the social engineering aspect of it. You know, this is going to be one of the first real big tests in the age of global warming when, um, when we'll actually see a government policy get passed by a legislature and implemented and see if we can really affect people's behavior. Now, it, there will be some hiccups um, early on, to be sure. You know, people either got to um, bring their own reusable bags or pay five cents um, to use paper bags. There might not even be enough paper bags to meet that demand. You know, we'll see. Might see a lot of people running down the sidewalk uh, carrying their groceries in their arms or in their T-shirts or something. You know, that all remains to be determined. But if a few months from now, with by the end of the year, we see people adjusting, I think that would be very encouraging for environmental efforts that really want to enact much bigger changes. You know, are, are people willing to give up uh, driving as much? Are people willing to use electric cars? Are people willing to, you know, forego some of the comforts of uh, modern living in order to meet these huge environmental challenges that we have in this age when climate change and the changes it would bring to our world are becoming more and more apparent. So that's what I'm looking at. I want to see if the implementation will be successful, whether it really changes people's behavior or whether we all just kind of get lost in the mix about whether plastic bags, you know, are making a big difference, um, you know, overall. Um, you know, that's what I'm concentrating on. So do you think it's going to start with plastic bags and then move on to packaging? Maybe they'll be, they'll find other ways to package the food besides plastic. Well, I'm not old enough to necessarily remember it, but the world did exist before plastic, right? Right. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, nowadays it's in everything. It's in our computers, our furniture, our clothes, uh, the grocery store wrapping meat, all sorts of things. Um, it's going to be tough for society to get off its uh, dependence on plastic. But, you know, we'll have to see. You know, there, you know, if in an ideal world, you know, we wouldn't be emitting as many greenhouse gases, and maybe there would be a little bit of space to <clears throat> waste a little plastic here and there for our takeout food or to wrap raw meat or vegetables or whatnot. But, you know, this is you know, one of the things in our daily lives where we really see how the consumption in our society hurts the environment, you know, how much through every day, you know, plastic bags we might just use for a few minutes. 
Um, I know I get a lot of packages um, that are, you know, with stuff that's covered in plastic that weren't really needed. Mm -hmm. You know, think about when you buy headphones, for example. There's so much plastic everywhere, mm -hmm. all for these little tiny headphones. Maybe, just maybe, um, you know, we'll find that we can live with most of the plastic, without most of the plastic that we currently use. And this plastic bag mm -hmm. is, bag band is a key part of that. You know, <laughs> look at me, I'm letting my internal uh, environmentalist speak a little bit. But, you know, I think mm -hmm. from a, a reporter standpoint, you know, you really want to see, um, you know, something change considering all the facts that confront us on how pollution and climate change threaten our, you know, very, uh, the, you know, the existence of our very civilization. Mm -hmm. So one so small step at a time. Let's see if we can stop using plastic bags, right? So I saw on uh... – Twitter, you finished Robert Caro's books. What's on your reading agenda now? Oh, I'm reading a pretty good book by the journalist uh, Ezra Klein about political okay. polarization from a social science standpoint. You know, one interesting phenomenon nowadays in this age where, you know, you're either a Republican or a Democrat, it's really hard to be anything in between, is um, – you know, the fact that actually the more educated someone is, the more inclined they are to use those facts to substantiate their, um, you know, their own bias. Um, a good example of this might be, uh, might be the attorney, um, Alan Dershowitz, who was, you know, who defended uh, President Trump at his impeachment trial. Very smart mm -hmm. man. Um, I believe the youngest tenure investor in the history of Harvard Law School. You know, no dummy. But some of his arguments might be said, you know, when you just take them, you know, in their most simplistic form to be suspect. But, you know, he is such a smart man that the, you know, the more knowledge you give, the more facts you throw out, the more it actually is used to substantiate the points he wants to make. So, you know, believe him, don't believe him. Um, I think, you know, this Ezra Klein book, uh, you know, could, will point out some other examples of how, you know, it's really hard to get people to change their ideas, no matter how many facts you put in front of them. So our time is up for today. So give yourself a little pitch. Well, I'm the Albany reporter for City and State Magazine. You can check out my work at cityandstateny.com or follow me on Twitter at Zach Reports. And Zach, I hope to... Uh, run into you next week because this week I I was in no condition to be running around any place. So we'll talk next week and um, we'll have a lively conversation, I'm sure. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Have a wonderful week. And you too, Zach. Thank you.